on the Empire Podcast this week. The Stath goes safe. Jason Biggs buddies up with Greggs once again in American Pie reunion. George R.R. Martin swaps his Game of Thrones for a game of incredibly rubbish office chairs and drops in for a chat. And we welcome a new member of the podcast team. Who could it be? The suspense is killing us. Hello, Pod. Chris Hewitt here. Back in the Empire pod seat after two weeks away exposing my man boobs on a far-flung beach. There's a mental image you'll find hard to shake. Not only, though, did my fellow podders not burn the podcast to the ground in my absence, they produced two fantastic shows full of great movie news, reviews, and insight, thus rendering me almost totally redundant. Damn it. Uh, anyway, we're going to try and do the same this week, and chances of that have been heightened considerably by the presence of the Queen of the Geeks, Helen O'Hara. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good, good, good. That's an official title, by the way. I like that. I like that. Do people address me as Your Majesty now? I think they may have to. Okay. It's it's legal. Uh, we're also graced by the presence of Phil Dissimlian, who's keen to stress that not only is he Empire's art house guru, but he's also an expert in the cinema of David Spade, which pretty much equates to the same thing. Hello, Phil. Hi, Chris. That's correct. Um, massive fan of David Spade's new wave. Can you name... Masterpiece. Can you name three Jacques David Spade films? Jacques <laughs> Yeah. Um, is he no. even in that? <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> yes, he is. Is he? Yeah. Okay. Is he? He's in that. I don't know. Have any they all appear. Have all any of us seen Jack and Jill? All I have. Okay. On, a, on a plane. I've seen enough of it. There was a funny joke in it. There was one funny joke. Um, Johnny Depp's there at one point wearing a Justin Bieber t-shirt. That's the joke. I was amused. Okay. Everything else wasn't amusing. On a plane, the air is somewhat rarefied, isn't well, it? Well, so, yeah. true. Yeah. It doesn't take much. Okay. Uh, can you name three David Spade films? No. <laughs> can David Spade name three David Spade Probably films? Probably not. Uh, Tommy Boy, Black Sheep, and... Joe Dirt. Joe Dirt, there we go. Uh, and last but not least, we're joined by a new member of the podcast team, largely because he kept moaning to Twitter about it until uh, we had to invite him. It's Ollie Richards. Hello. Fresh. Ooh. Hello, hello, hello. Fresh from asking Michelle Pfeiffer about DIY. Yes. How was that? It was very good. I often don't like to talk about my personal conversations <laughs> with my friends. But Luckily, honest, the, this one was in print. Yes, she built lots of things. Yeah, She builds things out of uh, bits of old cupboards that she learnt from Martha Stewart. Right. She built a fireplace. She once built a plane with her dad. Wow. Did Audrey it fly? Tattoo also loves DIY. I've never spoken to her, so I don't I care. have. I have Not about <laughs> DIY specifically, but certainly next time. Yeah. And Harrison Ford's a carpenter. Couldn't we get these guys together and get them to build us a house? We could, and we, I think we should, as, as, a, as a matter of urgency. Have Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer ever been in the same film? Have I they? feel like they have. Yes, they have. They they have. One... What Lies Beneath. What Lies Beneath. Of course. Of course, that must have been just carpentry galore in that set. It must have been hilarious. Uh, right, you lot have been getting in touch with us via Twitter and email to tell us what's on your movie mind, which is very nice of you. We're deeply, deeply touched. As you might expect, there's a lot of Avengers chatter there, and I'm not going to call it Avengers Assemble. I'm not doing it. It's the Avengers. You anyway, are such a rebel. I know. Oh. Take that, take that. Massive corporate thing entity. At Piccolo135 asks, when Cap throws his shield, how exactly does it manage to come back? Or off screen, does he have to go and fetch it? That's a good question. Well, of course, it's vibranium, which means it bounces and it often seems to bounce back to him. It does, yeah. I don't want to be in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> It does come back to him. It comes back to him several times. There's no one off screen chucking it back at him. Yes, but this person's asking It'd be quite how funny it comes if back there to him. Was. No, as you said, all off screen does he have to go and fetch it? Well, is it well, how exactly does it manage to come back? So she, you know, they're asking about aerodynamics, and you know, I, I imagine that the way he throws it, he's very good. He's practiced an awful lot of bouncing it off objects because he bounces it off Captain. Uh, he bounces it off Thor and Iron Man at one point, and it comes back Spoiler. to him. Spoiler. Yeah, I know. Maybe Aussie Chris Hemsworth taught him the boomerang technique. Perhaps he did. Who knows? At Mac underscore Boog says, and this is rather rather sweet. Uh, I bought the misses at Miss TS Musings an engagement ring. She bought me two tickets to the Avengers. I won. Now, 
Congratulations, <laughs> first of all. But really, Yay. I think I think there's a there's a winner here, and it's not at Miss TS Musings. If you if you value, and I love the Avengers, but if you value two tickets to the Avengers above getting married then you may have problems, my friend. Who knows? But hey, congratulations and all the best for the future. At Misty underscore Crom responded to something in last week's Avenger-centric show by chastising us for the mention of Captain Marvel because uh, James wanted to call Kevin Feige Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, this person says, Captain Marvel would have been inappropriate being a DC character. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Now, if this were QI, the QI klaxon would be going off. Why, Helen? Because, of course, there are there is more than one Captain Marvel. Mm. Um, and there is a DC Captain Marvel, but also... You know, uh, Marvel Captain Marvels, two Captain Marvels, in fact. Mm-hmm. So that's right. You know, there's, uh, Captain, there's Marvel, who was the original Captain Marvel, who got killed off, as and actually, know. unusually for a comic book character, stayed dead for years before coming back. Of course, uh, they always come back. They always come back eventually. And then there's uh, Captain Marvel, who is a female superhero who you can find in the Secret Wars uh, crossover series, and she could turn her light, her body, into all sorts of different forms of energy. Now, Ollie, do you still want to be in this podcast? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I thought this was going to be highbrow. I thought I'd be talking about. Art movies, but yeah. no, it's carpentry and whatnot. No, yes. okay. But we're going to get on to something fairly high right now because uh, at Blue Yetta says UK needs similar to French model uh, a quota on homegrown films screened in cinemas to help build meaningful audience numbers. Go on, Ollie. What do you think? About that? Uh, I disagree with that um, completely. Um, I'm all for UK films doing very well, mm-hmm. but I don't think any film deserves to do well based on where it's from. Precisely. I think very good films should uh, be seen, but that's not about it being British or not. Yeah, do you think uh, also it's, a, it's kind of a tendency then to force British films down people's throats? Yes, and there are some terrific ones. The first one that comes to mind recently is Tyrannosaur. Yeah, I'm amazing. There's been better ones. I recently. think last year was a banner year for British cinema, to be honest. Yeah, but then mm. there are you know no end of so-so comedies that we're asked to embrace. Mm, or so-so gangster yeah. crime movies. I mean, we can make great movies, but they should be treated as every other movie. It should be assessed on their merits, not on the fact that, all oh, they're British, therefore we should like them. It's like this thing that always comes up around the Olympics time. Uh, the Olympics time? The Oscars time. Uh, when we're asked about, what are Britain's chances exactly. at the Oscars? And my answer, which always gets edited out of whatever I'm talking <laughs> about, is, I don't care. I just want the best people to win. Exactly. Um, and it's like a, it's a bit like that. But this is part of your campaign to undermine the monarchy, isn't it? It's part of my campaign to undermine the concept of the nation state and get rid of it, yes. Helen, you're a communist. Um, um, Discuss. Um, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> you wanted highbrow, Holly Richards. <laughs> we give you highbrow. Nation states and people being undermined and all sorts of stuff. Let's talk about the Avengers again, shall we? Um, <laughs> at Enclo says, What reused location do you spot most in films? E.g. the Albert Docks in Liverpool in SH. What's Sherlock SH? Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. Okay. Really? Yeah. Okay, and and Captain America, uh, when uh, Steve Rogers thwarts the evil schemes of Heinz Kruger, played by Richard Armitage, or Haddon Hall. What is Haddon Hall? Haddon Hall is where they shot Jane Eyre and also The Princess Bride. Which is exactly in the uh, examples that Enclo uh, cites. Now, as you can clearly tell, I'm terrible at spotting locations, buildings, anything in movies, but which reused locations do you guys spot? Helen? I know one, because I often go jogging past the Royal Naval College in Greenwich, and there's often filming there so things like The Wolfman Gulliver's Travels uh, going back a bit Shanghai Nights was there um, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes 2 Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean 4 Wow! Uh, basically anything that needs a sort of a oh, and very recently Les Mis filmed there as well basically anything that needs a sort of 19th century-ish location they shoot at uh, at Greenwich Wow fantastic wow. anything else do you spot anything else in uh, the films Chatsworth House tends to be in Mm, that's Every right. film set before like two thousand three. I don't have a knowledge of stately homes What's or anything. Yeah. It's in Derbyshire, in the Peak District. It's very near Hadley Hall, the, actually. They that shot, help yeah, them. it's close. They're sort of 
couple of miles apart. of kind of period period drama <laughs> locations, I guess. They um, they shot the uh, the Duchess there, and I believe the Wolfman. Wow. And Jane Eyre was also shot at Chatsworth. And also um, the TV version of Pride and Prejudice, it was Mr. Darcy's house. And the movie, Joe Wright version of Pride and Prejudice as well. So, there you go. Yeah. At Primate Man says, simply, discuss supporting actors and how important they are. Now, we're graced by the presence of the man who coined a phrase, the 27 percenters, which is uh, Ollie. So explain your theory. What are 27 percenters? Uh, 27 percenters are, very simply, people who... they're their mere appearance in a film makes it 27% better than it would otherwise be. <laughs> okay. I'm thinking people such as Martin Short. Yes. Uh, Nathan Fillion is probably uh, a bit big for that now, I think. I think he's more of a leading mm. man than a 27%. He briefly was. He oh, was. I would say not in films. In, in, uh, certainly in TV, he's a leading man. Well, I will say good day to you, sir. <laughs> well, there you go. Is Bill Fitchner in, in that category now, or is he Nathan yeah. Fillion? Yes, I think yeah. he is. He yes. certainly it's wasn't people, drive angry. Right. It's, they, sometimes you won't even know their name. It's just a, that guy. I love that guy. I was going to say, what's the difference between a 27 percent and a that guy from that thing? It's a very, very complicated maths association. Is there like trigonometry, some algorithm? Explain you've, here. You've this, is, this is purely an aural thing, and I would need to dis, uh, display this with diagrams. In, in short, I think a that guy from that thing is not necessarily a good thing, but a 27 percent is definitely okay. a good thing. So it's a subset of right. that guy from that thing. So uh, I know what you mean. I know. What about Stephen Root? Because... I'd put him in that category. That's okay. Until I watched J. Edgar. And then I thought maybe... Well, I still haven't seen there that. There are some films mm-hmm. that... It might not apply across the board. There are some films that even a 27%er can't really do much with. Yeah, that's but possible. a 27%er can be someone who you will see a film solely for. Like, I will see any film that stars Martin Short in any capacity. I don't care what it is. Really? Uh, okay, if you want to be featured on the show, get what's on your chest off your chest by Twittering us. Just climb into your Twitter machine, use the hashtag EmpirePodcast, and Bob is your uncle. Uh, or you can email us at podcast at EmpireOnline.com, or you can even Facebook us if that floats your boat. Come on, Facebook, because you don't really get in touch with us these days, and you're letting the side down. Okay, now it's jingle time. Long-time listeners are already covering your ears in horror. New listeners, you may well look baffled, so we'll explain. Every week, we ask readers to come up with jingles and short stings for the podcast. Every week, you send us unspeakable horrors that can only be described as what would happen if H.P. Lovecraft used Garage Band. And this week's effort comes from, yes, you guessed it, Microfarad Melody Eel, who's come up with this. Okay. <laughs> so that's just defenders of the earth with one word change. Yeah, and he takes uh, he takes excerpts from the previous podcast and puts them in. So that was oh, I see. I should probably listen to these. That was James I? and Helen and Kevin Feige at the very very end. I believe so. Yes. Yeah. So wow. that happened. Microfire Melody, we appreciate your efforts. You're going to get us massively sued though one of these days. Uh, if you want to write a jingle for us and your name isn't Microfire Melody Eel, then please God do write a jingle for us. We appreciate it again, but you know, please, someone else would be nice. Please make one that's about ten to fifteen seconds in length. Cannot stress that enough. We're getting jingles in at the moment are about a minute long. We can't use them, sadly. Uh, please send them to us via the podcast at empireonline.com email address. Okay, it's news time. And I stay with all things Avengers. So we discuss the first mega story of the week, which is the uh, film's astonishing success around the world. Hasn't opened yet in the States, does so today. Uh, but it's already grossed over $200 million globally. It's on course for a billion, outstripping by far any previous Marvel movie, as the film itself does, of course. About 30 quid of that $200 million comes from me because I saw it three times in two days last week upon my return to Blighty. So, 
What do we think? Do we are we surprised by the success of this movie? Are we pleased? Please, definitely. The the only thing that I thought could stop it getting to a billion dollars is if people thought they had to have seen Captain America and Thor and were put mm. off by not having done so. But you know that aside, I think it was always on course for that because it's it's a terrific film. And also, like if Alice in Wonderland can make a billion dollars, <laughs> frankly, if this doesn't, uh, world, you have failed me. Absolutely, billion dollars doesn't always mean good film, but in this case, it will do. Yes, yes, true. And I think, to a certain extent, I'm surprised, because I was surprised it was as good as it was. I thought long ago when they announced this was going to happen, I thought there's no way that can't be bad. That's too many, far too many cooks. Mm. That broth will be awful. But it's terrific, and it fully deserves to make that money. And also it's got, I think, it's got quite a long run without any huge competition. Mm. I mm. mean, what's big between now and Prometheus that could challenge it? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, in the States, Battleship opens uh, next week. Yeah. Well, so what's, what's, sorry, what's good oh, that sorry. could challenge it? Well, as we all know, good doesn't necessarily equate to successful or unsuccessful. So uh, Battleship Coop will be huge. I don't know. I don't know what the tracking's like uh, in the States. It's done okay over here. But, uh, yeah, but it didn't have Avengers to go up against. And I think if people are given the choice between the I two. Think, I think here it's started to sink Battleship pretty fast. It, oh. it has very good Did very you good notice pun? that yeah. there was a, an aquatic pun in there somewhere? I that was accidental, believe I, it or not. I, I it really did, was. I uh, but it has tot- it's totaled b- uh, Battleship and, you know, since it's opened. And Battleship started reasonably strongly considering mm. the bad word of mouth. I wondered, though, considering how well Avengers has done globally, mm-hmm. if, if that kind of buzz feeds back into the American box office. Because obviously if films open strongly in America, we tend to kind of get the ripples of that mm. here. Mm. Does it work the other way? Will the American film goes be kind of galvanised by that it does a bit nowadays the other thing to remember is it also has to open in China and Russia China and Japan uh, and Japan which yeah. are the other biggest film markets um, mm. beside you know ourselves Australia Brazil mm. Germany so it's it's still got a long way to go some box um, office prog- prognosticators are saying it's going to make 500 million dollars worldwide by the end of this weekend and it's on mm. course now to make over 150 million dollars in this opening weekend mm. in the States which is absolutely phenomenal uh, given especially uh, if it does that it will have made pretty much what Captain America and Thor made in their entire runs in fact in the UK it made something like 50 million pounds in something weekend which was more than Captain America and wow. Thor made in their entire a- runs any of the Marvels really any of the Marvels in fact so it, it's phenomenal how this movie is breaking out um, and, and it's great and you know I, I, say, I saw it three times in two days and that wasn't through contractual mm. obligation I absolutely genuinely love this film it is a movie I've been waiting for since I was five years old and it did not disappoint mm. it has yeah. got all the elements that you need to be the biggest film in the world though I mean it's not like this was some surprise breakout it's got huge stars <laughs> and it's based on a comic book yeah. and it's a huge expensive effects movie so yeah. it's not it's not really a surprise that this is doing very well but at the same time it's the surprise is that it's terrific and it's doing very well precisely and it's good to see a terrific film being rewarded but people are going to see it again and one of the things I'm seeing on Twitter and I, I don't th- recall seeing this for any movie of recent years is the number of people coming out of it and going I've just seen Avengers for the second time I'm going to go see it yeah. again I've yeah. just seen, I, I can't wait to see it again I'm going for the fourth time I would have happily seen it uh, for another couple of times if I didn't have uh, a life and a, and a Dido wife saying don't go see it another time I'm actually going to see it again this weekend w- with something called a D-box screening what the hell is a D-box screening motion is seats to bring you into the action I'm, I'm intrigued what, what I haven't tried it I'm going to go and give it a go so like know. if you're on a, a helicopter the, the seat sort of oh. you know raises and moves a bit like the helicopter does um, and if there's a if everybody falls sideways then the seat slightly jerks sideways that kind of thing oh they have the same stuff in porn cinemas I'm, I'm sure I, I've read somewhere I, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that okay <laughs> just move on pretend it never yes, happened that's um, the best way to go so I'm going to try that out as an Avengers thing and then I would where's that that's at the um, are we allowed to advertise here it's the Cineworld O2 yeah. 
the Cine World O2, mm. which is at the O2. At the O2. And the phone number is... <laughs> Uh, okay, so we're going to stick with the Avengers. Um, sorry if you're a bit sick of it at this point, but uh, Helen, you want to talk about something that's Avengers related? I do. Well, in, in terms of the news this week, um, yeah. everyone who has seen the Avengers, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that Hulk steals the show, um, especially since we already said it last week, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and therefore, there has been renewed talk of a Hulk movie starring Mark Ruffalo, who obviously plays it in the Avengers, and hopefully getting Hulk right on screen for the entire length of a film without anybody else being around to, uh, to crash the party. Now, they'd already planned a Hulk TV series, and Kevin Feige of Marvel Studios hasn't made any commitments to a Hulk movie yet, although he's clearly, you know, open to and, and in in favour, generally speaking, of the idea. But uh, there's now been some word from their toy division of all places that they would quite like to see a Hulk movie, so it, it could be something that's happening. That's always encouraging, isn't it? A word from the yeah. toy division. Well, I think that's because the rumour was uh, on the first movie that the toy tie-in Hulk hands made more money worldwide than the movie did. <laughs> really? Uh, that's that's the, the, the urban legend <laughs> that I've heard anyway. That's amazing. I'm not surprised about this, to be honest, because he does steal the show. If you put, you know, if you put together a list of your top ten Avengers moments, there's a very good chance that mm. the Hulk will be involved in at least five of them. Mm. Um, great. It's the Hulk I've been wanting to see all my life. It's the best Hulk ever. Uh, but I'm very interested to see how this impacts upon the TV show, which has Guillermo del Toro involved. I just don't see how a Hulk TV show would work, even with uh, Guillermo's involvement, because of the budgetary concerns I mean, mm. and constraints. You just can't have that character in convincing CG on a weekly basis, can you? I just can't see it. Hmm. You could do it. I mean, I, I guess effects have come on a long way, so you could do it. It probably it wouldn't look as good as it would in a movie, I doubt, hmm. unless they threw enormous amounts of money. Um, I do still wonder how suited Hulk is to a whole film. I loved him in The Avengers, but I don't know whether he's still appropriate for a full film. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean, but I think... There are great, great runs in the comic book, and uh, I show my colours here, but there's a, there's a run by Peter David, for example, around about the 1990s, that was absolutely amazing and explored the psychology of Bruce Banner and it established many, many different Hulks. There's a Savage Hulk, there's a Smart Hulk, there's a Grey Hulk who's got a very, very great attitude problem. Um, and if you went down that direction, you can have a really, really good Hulk movie. Personally, the end of The Avengers uh, kind of sets up this buddy thing between... Bruce Banner and Tony Stark, which I'd love to see explored. I thought those two worked really, really well together in the film. Mm. And I wouldn't be totally averse to Tony Stark appearing in the Hulk film and having a supporting role or or, or Banner turning up in, in Iron Man 3. I'm sure that's not going to happen, but I'd love to see it happen somewhere down the line. Um, more Ruffalo is always a good thing because he was fantastic. Yes. He's mm. terrific, yeah. Absolutely fantastic. So that's, a, that's a, a big thumbs up to potential Hulk film. One concern I do have about the Avengers and uh, post-Avengers world is that Marvel's slate for the next few years is already pretty much mapped out. They've, they were talking about Captain America 2, Thor 2 is about to start production in a few months, Iron Man 3 starts filming next week, I believe. And it, I'm wondering if they need to introduce, uh, see if you guys agree, a new character at some point. I mean, there's been talk of Edgar Wright being attached to Ant-Man for years, but would that be separate from the Marvel universe that we've established so far? Do they need to bring someone else in to give them their own film who we haven't seen before? I would, mm. I would think they need to probably introduce a new character in the next Avengers who doesn't necessarily need a warm-up of their own. Given how many people won't have seen all of the films that came before the Avengers. Like a lot of people didn't see Thor or Captain America, which you should because they're very good. But you could easily go into an Avengers film and someone else turns up. Mm. I think I don't know how much they need another, another standalone hero at the moment because there are so many. There's also been talk of a spin-off with Hawkeye and Black Widow. Yeah, but I'm talking about brand new characters. No, I know, yeah. but I'm just saying that there might be another new sub-franchise, mm. meta-franchise, I don't know. 
yeah, I, I, going on I, there as well. Yeah, I wouldn't have considered that necessarily before seeing the Avengers, but they work quite well as mm. characters, so it'd be quite nice to see them off in an adventure together, perhaps, rather than maybe in separate solo films. But maybe use those films then to seed characters away, the way that Thor introduced Hawkeye and uh, so forth. It's hard to know where exactly they'd go, because some of the other Avengers in the lineup are either already tied up with other studios mm. or are, you know, not so much with the interesting. So the big ones are used up, essentially. I, that would be my Im- immediate not having thought about it much reaction okay yeah. I'll say one I'll say well two words actually I'd like to see the vision and I'm going to leave it at that uh, okay uh, a lot's happened this week in the movie world Ollie's shaking his head he's no idea what the vision is <laughs> google it uh, the Stath dropped out of Fast 6 he mm. said the, the character wasn't quite to his liking apparently Michelle Rodriguez committed to Fast 6 the character was quite to her liking but Ollie you're not going to talk about Fast 6 are you what's floating your movie boat uh, Van Helsing is floating my movie boat. Really? <laughs> yes. It's a 2003. What's happening? I mean, did that float anyone's boat in 2003? <laughs> I was really excited about it. It came out in 2004, but in, t- in 2003, I was massively excited about Van Helsing. Hugely excited about it. Do you remember Van how Helsing. much in The Office we used to watch that clip um, of Dracula? <laughs> no! <laughs> I have no heart. <laughs> I am hollow. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was one of the first moments you kind of realised that this film was not going to be any good. And I decided, oh. I did a vehicle reversing thing. <laughs> which I, for months I'd been this, this huge uh, pro- you know, uh, proponent, I guess, of, of Van Helsing. I've been, I've been banging on about it endlessly. I, I was on set. All the, the designs looked fantastic. Had a huge Jackman in it, for goodness sake. And then we saw some clips and I kind of went, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> Uh, so yeah but it's back 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 it is back 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 it's kind of been back 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 a bit for a couple of years Mm. Uh, Universal have been talking about um, redoing it but it's become it's in the news again uh, this week because it has new producers I think also writers uh, which is uh, Roberto Orsi 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 Orsi. I apologise and Alex Kurtzman um, Kurtzman Kurtzman, I terrible, terrible. <laughs> I've only seen them written down. Clearly, you know them personally. Um, but they are now on board with, and Tom Cruise is uh, attached. Interesting to um, play Van Helsing. And the reason I thought it was interesting is because I saw a lot of discussion on the Twitter about people thinking this was a terrible idea because the last film was really bad. Yeah, but mm. I think it's a great story. And it's it's a character who could be brilliant on the scr- on screen. Yeah. Surely that's the reason to reboot something because the last one didn't work very well. Just to be clear, it's a it's a great story. Van Helsing himself, not the plot of the last film. But uh, no, I agree. <laughs> no, true. We actually wrote a feature on the website in about two thousand and four, which now seems to have vanished into the ether, um, where we actually made a list of films that we wanted to see remade, and this was one of them because there's nothing wrong with the con the, the conceit of it. There's nothing wrong with the idea of a sort of nineteenth century. Monster Hunter. There, was, there wasn't even that much wrong with the casting. You know, Hugh Jackman's fine. Uh, it's just that the, everything else is so bad, mm. um, and the the plot, the dialogue, you know, all the of special that. effects. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The fact that the film ends with the, the the male lead crushing the female lead to death, which is generally speaking not the best way to take your movie. But it's, it's, ballsy, it's ballsy. It's ballsy. <laughs> it's a ballsy. It's a very dark. But ending. she then has her brilliant Lion King moment in the clouds, which is amazing. <laughs> It's actually a great movie to watch really late at night if you're a bit drunk. <laughs> then it's amazing, which I am most nights. So. And indeed now. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> the only reason I'm here. Should we get Van Helsing on the iPhone, see what, see what happens? <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I agree with that completely. I think it's a, it's a good concept. And, and Cruise is interesting. It'd be, his dance card's pretty 
pretty full up, isn't it? He's doing this uh, Oblivion at the moment. He's also attached to Doug Lyman's All You Need Is Kill. He's got uh, his first, and, and I'm guessing not the last, Jack Reacher movie, One Shot, coming out at the end yes. of the year. There's going to be another Mission Impossible movie. Uh, he's attached to tons of stuff. So where will he fit this in? I don't know. Ollie, you're meant to come here with facts. Well, I don't have Tom Cruise's schedule. But yeah, but so many of these things that he's attached to are you know, in discussions or they're being worked on. This doesn't mean he's got dates or when he's doing all of them. So it's the same, you know, Guillermo del Toro's got millions of projects. Yeah. And they'll all happen at some point. Yeah, so it, it may not happen. And if it does happen, it may not happen with Tom Cruise. Someone else may be attached to something. True. Janine Tatum could be Van Helsing. Uh, and after the year he's had, that wouldn't be too bad, would it? He's Helen? had a good year. He's had year. a good year. Well done, Janine Tatum. Um, so someone tweeted in, I don't have your name, sorry. Um, but they actually referred to the Van Helsing story and they were wondering, is it too soon? No. This is a movie. No. That, that's eight, it was a it's, rubbish film. Also, it's eight years. You know, if Spider Man can do it in far less than that, and that didn't go so badly, then yeah, well, yeah. that's not that's not new at all. But, but there's a school of thought that the Spider Man rebooted too soon as well. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen it yet, so yeah. No, but people, you know, obviously the people on the fanboys on the internet are going, "Oh, it's too soon! It's too soon! You shouldn't reboot something." By the time Spider Man comes out, the Amazing Spider Man comes out in July. The first Spider-Man will be 10 years old. So is that too soon? It should be a statute of limitations on reboots and remakes. Mm. Not if the film's bad. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if the film's outright, downright bad, then, and this was voted uh, by our readers, actually, the 14th worst film ever made, <laughs> uh, interestingly. Um, you it's know, a little high. I, 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 I think it's a little harsh as well, but not massively so. But, um, but you know, if, if in that case, just get it done right already you know okay. I think the Spider-Man for me feels a bit more too soon mm-hmm. than this one okay. I, I think if you've got an interesting take on something then it's an, uh, then do it whenever I mean comic books do it all the time yeah. they have different universes of stuff and true yeah if Amazing Spider-Man comes out and it feels like a completely different version of Spider-Man which it's telling it's got crossover <laughs> with the early story sorry slight technical hitch he's, he's um, drunk he's, he's gone mad then then I don't mind it's got a great cast it's got great people on board so okay yeah there's no enough. limit I don't think alright well let's keep an eye on that one I, I can't imagine we'll see a Van Helsing movie anyway before 2014 2015 something like that by which point we'll all be dead anyway according to the Mayan calendar so there we go Phil it's your turn now you're excited about a development involving the most famous guest of the Linton Travel Tavern aren't you I am Chris uh, two words for you monkey tennis it's Alan Partridge <laughs> he's uh, finally coming to the big screen um, in a project that's been sort of germinating for almost 10 years now I think since well certainly since 2005 there's been talk about this and and this week um, Empire's O'Neill caught up with Armando Iannucci uh, ostensibly talk about Veep his HBO show and he let us know that this film is happening and it's happening this year they've got a director on board in the in the shape of Declan Lowney mm-hmm. um, who is the man behind some of Father Ted's best episodes including Christmas Ted which I think everyone will agree is awesome um, he is on board and obviously Iannucci himself Steve Coogan, Peter Bainham are writing the script. Beyond that, we don't know an awful lot. We don't know quite where it's going to take Alan. Hopefully nowhere. Probably nowhere, I was going to say. I I think the idea of, as amazing as it sounded, a kind of Transformers battle or an Al-Qaeda siege or some of the (laughs) US ideas that were mooted, I don't think any of those are going to happen. It's going to be, I don't know if it's Norfolk focused or whether he's just battling with the BBC's head of commissioning. Um, it's hugely exciting news, though. It is exciting news, and it's something that's you know got everybody pretty much fired up because there's a lot yeah. of love out there for Alan Partridge. So I, for one, am dead excited. 
Absolutely. Do you think this... What could this movie do, success-wise? Because something like The Inbetweeners was, I think, the second biggest film of last year. Uh, made something like £42 million. In the UK alone, I'm not sure it did much of a uh, splash anywhere else, necessarily. Yeah. But could a Partridge movie... I mean, people have been waiting for this for years. Could I, it do something similar, do you think? I think it's going to make more money than The Avengers. <laughs> really? <laughs> that a billion. You're saying a, a, the Partridge movie will make yeah, a billion and in fact, dollars? if you're looking for another character for the next Avengers... <laughs> Alan... <laughs> Brings his own driving gloves. <laughs> that would be amazing. So, look no further, I would say. Um, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. The Inbetweeners was colossal uh, last year. Um, this hopefully will do similar. But I guess, you know, there's a generation that, that didn't grow up with Alan Partridge. So maybe you'd be new to the Inbetweeners kind of fresh meat generation. I don't think it's the same audience, I'll be honest with you. No, it probably isn't. So I, I would imagine it's not going to be, you know, quite in that country. But I think people are, people are going to go and see it. Fantastic. Uh, I'm on board, definitely. And I know there's already a battle developing in the office about uh, a said visit. There are a couple of people who are... Well, we got almost, Dan. almost came to blows the yes. other day. So, Dan, Dan, uh, Dan, 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 yeah, Dan. We do have a Dan. Dan, mm. Dan, Dan. Uh, okay, cool. It's now uh, time for another jingle. Here we go. Battleship. 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 Apocalypse Cow. Everyone, including major characters, it seems, is losing their head over Game of Thrones. The HBO show was a huge hit, layered, intricate, dark, sexy, weird, and the books that spawned it are a constant fixture on the bestseller charts. George R.R. R. Martin, the brilliant author who started it all, took time out from his busy schedule to pop into the pod booth recently, when he probably should have been at home, chained to a desk, finishing the bloody thing in the first place. He was interrogated by Game of Thrones Uber fans James Dyer, Helen O'Hara, and Nick DeSemlian, warning the following interview is possibly the geekiest thing we've ever done. And that's saying a lot. This is coming from a man who just said the vision and left it at that. Enjoy. Well, uh, we're here today for a very special Empire Podcast interview. We have George R.R. R. Martin with us, the author of, well, many books, but in particular, A Song of Ice and Fire, which has been adapted into HBO's hit series, A Game of Thrones. Uh, so welcome. Thank you for coming. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. So, um, I mean, did you expect the series to be as phenomenally successful as it's been so far? Well, you know, you you hope. I expect is the wrong word. You don't. You you can't expect anything in in television and film. Uh, you know, I've I've worked it before on other shows, and it's such a it's such a rolling of the dice. Mm. You you don't know whether you're going to be canceled and gone after two weeks or have the biggest hit. You know, but you 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 keep your fingers crossed. Um, in this case, uh, we were with HBO, so at least I knew going in that we were going to have the full first season. That mm-hmm. we weren't going to be canceled after you know two episodes episodes in, like happens on the American broadcast Mm -hmm. networks, and uh, that it would be a show of very high quality. So whether it found an audience or not, that that remained to be seen. Um, And indeed, there was some debate coming out of the gate uh, with the first season as whether we would, you know, there Mm -hmm. were some reviewers who liked it and other reviewers said, no, it's too complicated. And of course, there was the usual things. Well, what is HBO doing making the show for nerds? And, uh, you know, I thought HBO was a home of serious drama. That those reviews, of course, always annoyed the hell out of me. But uh, <laughs> but thankfully, uh, those reviewers have been shown to be a deranged minority, and uh, we've uh, we've gotten terrific reviews and, and a steadily increasing viewership. And uh, 
uh, it's really good. Yeah. I mean, what is it about fantasy that people dismiss it so readily, do you think? I mean, we're all, we're all yeah. nerds here, let's be honest. But it, so. is, it is a bit the red-headed stepchild of literature that people sort of somehow sci-fi and fantasy get sort of denigrated an awful lot. Whereas Game of Thrones, I think becoming so popular people are watching the show reading your books it somehow seems to have legitimized the genre for cool kids well i think all genre fiction gets you know gets disrespected to some degree um and i think that's been true for a hundred years i think probably you you have to go back to uh the great argument between Henry James and Robert Louis Stevenson, where there was a great divide between popular entertainment mm. and uh, and serious literature, which is really unfortunate. I, I think both sides have suffered from that divide, and uh, Henry James may burn in hell for it, but uh, <laughs> um, I'm being jocular. I hope, I hope that's coming across. I, I uh, really don't wish any any disrespect on poor dead Mr. James. But uh, I do think science fiction and fantasy get maybe even more of their share. If if all of the genre kids are picked on, uh, we're the ones who, who get picked on the most. And it's, you know, it's a inability, I think, uh, a failure of imagination on the part of uh, some element of critics and academe and uh, whatever. I, you know, I I look back to my own father, who could never understand why I love science fiction and fantasy. Now, he was by no means an academic. He was a, he was a longshoreman, <clears throat> so he didn't know anything about literary theories or, or what was good, and indeed, uh, he would not have liked Henry James. I don't think he actually read any books, but he watched a lot of TV and movies and things like that, and he loved westerns. And uh, I love like Twilight Zone and science fiction stuff, and he and weird stuff, as he called it, weird stuff. Why? And he would say to me, "Why do you like all this weird stuff? That's not real. That's not real. The West, that was real. You know, there were men like that who were who were cowboys and gunslingers and stuff like that. That that was real, but." dragons and spaceships and aliens it's it's silly stuff it's not real and you know i think in some ways he he speaks for a certain proportion of the of the critics out there they just can't get past that it has a dragon in it you know even if you tell them you know the dragon can function as a literary metaphor you know? <laughs> <laughs> they it's still a dragon and if it has a dragon in it it must be for kids it must be hmm. silly it must be not worthy of uh, the attention of uh, someone who appreciates serious drama, mm. uh, which, of course, is something that I reject and have always rejected. Uh, you know, as a writer, I, my, my own credo has always been from William Faulkner's Nobel Prize acceptance speech, where he said, uh, the only thing worth writing about is the human heart in conflict with itself. And I think that's true then as now. So the rest is all furniture. And it doesn't matter if your story is about the human heart in conflict with itself. It has, if it has strong characters who are facing the issues that human beings have faced throughout time, issues of love and death and sexuality and duty and honor and our relations to society, our relations to each other, all the stuff that that fiction really is about and you handle that honestly it doesn't matter whether it has a dragon in it or it's a spaceship or if it's built around um a gunslinger on a trail drive or a detective solving a crime or indeed you know some working class bloke just coming home to his family and he eating a bacon buddy and wondering what life is all about it's still the human heart in conflict with itself and the rest is just the it's just the trappings um so for me, there's good stories and bad stories, and uh, it really irritates the hell out of me to see 
not only my own work, but entire genres and many, many brilliant writers who have worked in the fields of science fiction and fantasy mm -hmm. dismissed out of hand because of elements that they've chosen to include in their story. So what are the dragons a literary metaphor for, just for the record? <laughs> uh, well, in some sense, power. I mean, power is central to my things. Uh, you know, Danny, he who possesses the dragons has the ultimate destructive power in the world of, uh, in the world of Westeros. Now, clearly you're not going to be able to. You, you've been down this, this road before. You're certainly not going to give a, an ETA on the winds of winter. I'm not, no. Can we ask <laughs> how much of it is written? About 200 pages. About 200 pages. Which so leaves 1,300 pages to go. <laughs> <laughs> it, it will be another huge one like, uh, like the last one. Not only is 200 pages written, 200 pages is almost all battle. So the, the people who, uh, who like hacking and killing and slashing will be very pleased. Is this one, do you think? But it will be a literary metaphor as well course, in the battle. Course, the sword, you know, is a, a phallic symbol. And, uh, yeah. Is this one going to be a, an easier write in the way that it was one of your planned installments as opposed to the previous two, which kind of emerged halfway through? Well, I hope it will be easier, but I, I make no promises. I've given <laughs> up. I've been burned so many times trying to estimate when a book will be done, and then it's not done, and a mob turns up on my door with pitchforks and torches, <laughs> and I have to come out and explain to them. So, no, um, I, I make no predictions, uh, but I'm hoping it will go faster. The last two books um, took much longer than I anticipated and much longer than anybody wanted, including myself. That to be said, it's not going to be done overnight. I mean, I have already pe people emailing me and saying, well, it's been, you know, it's been six months since I read the last one. When's the next <laughs> one coming out? Sorry, guys, it's going to be years here. It's going to be at least two years and maybe three years. I hope it three years would be about it and not five years like yeah. the last one. So we shall see. You know, if I can get it done in less than three years, I would be very happy. Before we move on to the reviews, it's competition time. Last week's competition offered you the chance to win one of five copies of The Iron Lady, and gifts don't really get any greater than that. And the winners were Ashley Manhire, James Burgess, Max Rosehill, Lee Shoebridge, and Chris Mellership. And yes, we did choose you uh, based on your surnames, which are all uniformly awesome. Uh, you correctly answered that John Major succeeded Margaret Thatcher as a British Prime Minister. Ah, happy days. Uh, this week I got in this morning and I said, what's a competition this week? And uh, then Helen said, have you set one up? And I said, doesn't Lucy set them up? And then we looked blankly at each other. So there you go. It's a glistening insight into how we work here at Empire. But then Helen said, aha, I've got a copy of Game of Thrones signed by George R.R. R. Martin. So that's it to win this coveted tome. Answer the following easy question. What does the RR stand for in George R.R. Martin. If you don't know it, Google it. If you don't know what Google is, bing it. Send your answer and information to podcast at empireonline.com and best of luck to you and all who sail on you. This week, I expect many of you will be seeing The Avengers, whether it's for the first or, in my case, the 40th time. But in case you're not, there's actually a whole wave of new releases to tempt you into parting with your hard-earned cash. Let's start with what is, on paper, the biggest release of the week, which is the return of Jim, Stifler, Finch, Jim's dad, and the rest of the gang in American Pie Reunion, the final slice of the American Pie series, and one that reunites the entire original cast after a slew of terrible straight-to-DVD sequels. You'll notice the absence of the phrase, long-awaited return, because... Frankly, it hasn't done terribly well in the States, suggesting that maybe we're a little full up and don't want any more pie, thank you very much. But what if the film itself has the pie gone mouldy, Helen? Well, it's um, maybe beginning to stale a bit around the edges, but I think it's still kind of got most of the charm that the you know the series has always had. They're kind of likeable characters. They mm -hmm. get on in a, in a 
vaguely relatable way, you know, up until they start getting into ridiculous farcical situations. Um, and it is kind of nice to see everybody back for this. I mean, to the extent that the MILF guys return and get their own little story arc. Wow. Um, which I thought was, <laughs> was quite charming, actually. Um, but the, yeah, the film as, it's, as a whole, I think, I think what it's lost since the very first one is in the first one, the girls had their own kind of dilemmas going on and their uh-huh. own problems and their own discussions with none the boys present about what they wanted and uh-huh. what they were thinking. And while it wasn't maybe equal, it was at least a bit more balanced. And that's kind of been lost from pretty much all the sequels and now it's lots of, you know, bouncing boobies. Um, basically. <laughs> so, so I think a, <laughs> so I think it's, it's lost a little bit of something there. I mean, the jokes are kind of hit and miss. They're very much what you've seen before, but mostly quite funny. Okay, Ollie, do you agree with that? I mean, what's a plot this film, first of all? Is there a plot? There is a plot. It's uh, They're all back for, I think, their 10-year reunion? 13th. 13th year that reunion. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. They do make a joke of that in the film and say that their school was so rubbish it didn't manage to arrange a 10-year reunion. Okay, mine didn't, so... There yeah. you go. And it's, I mean, there's not much more to it than that. It's about uh, where they all are at in their lives and uh, Jim and Michelle are married now with a kid and their sex life has kind of fallen apart so their thing is about getting that back together. And it's, I found I found it a lot sweeter than I expected to. Like, I thought, well, I don't really care about this cast being back together. It's not like any of them are really big stars hmm. and this was impos- This was an amazing feat that they got them all in. Um, but it kind of made me realise how much I actually like these characters. And I thought mm. it had... I found this one actually the funniest since the first one. Yes. I, I thought it very true. much had the feel of that. You you really felt like these people were friends. And I think that's what's nice about it. I think Helen's point about the girls are kind of sidelined is fair. But I, I think really this is the boys' story and it kind of always has been. I think it was much more equal in the first one. And if you go back and watch the first one, actually, you will see that there was there was a lot of discussion of the girls themselves talking about well, how they felt about losing their virginity, as well as the boys' just single-minded obsession with it. Mm. And I think that's kind of fallen by the wayside. So you know, Alison Hannigan gets a little bit to do here, um, but the other girls are basically, you know, irrelevancies, lust objects, and, and be, pretty much nothing more than that. Would that be partially because she's become a big star since because of How I Met Your Mother, or because... I think it's partly because because, no. I think it is the plot. In fairness, I think it's because she's Jim's wife, and they didn't really. One got the sense that they didn't put much effort into thinking where the other girls would have would be in their lives, particularly. No, in fairness, that's partly probably for timing. You know, they've got so many characters to re-establish and and kind of bring up to date and give something to do. Mm. So I'm not saying it isn't probably inevitable, but it would have been nice to see a little bit more effort made, especially when you've got hundreds of sort of nubile teens also kind of (laughs) running around just to be also lust. Okay. I think we all know that it's always essentially been about Jim's dad's eyebrows, and which how, do how they, get their own and they are in rip roaring form in this. And okay. they they have a character arc, in fact. They do. They <laughs> actually yeah. do have an arc. So yeah, yeah. So that's uh, an, awesome. An arc. Okay. In more ways than one. Well, we gave the film two stars, which which uh, indicates maybe not quite as funny as the crusty. other ones. Yeah. A little crusty. I think Helen's right. It's okay. just a little. Mm, yeah, I, I, I did think that was a little bit harsh, but um, but yeah. So make up your own mind if you want. Uh, it's up to you, it's entirely. Your mind is your mind. Uh, next up, it's the Staith, which is often cause for wild celebrations around here. Everyone's favourite Cockney killing machine is back in safe, in which he plays an ex-cop turned cage fighter who has to protect a little Chinese girl with a talent for numbers from the attentions of the triads, the Russian mafia and a cadre of corrupt New York cops all in the space of one night. And that's just about nailed the tone of the film, I think, uh, which is written by directed by Boaz Yakin, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it's, it, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is honestly 
just exactly what you want from a Jason Statham movie. You know, completely over-the-top action, but done with a, a very straight face on his part, and I think a bit of tongue-in-cheek on the director's part. But yeah, you've got, you know, all the gangsters and all the cops after him mm. the whole way through the movie. Mm. And, and therefore, basically, anyone he encounters, he probably has to beat up, which is fun. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, this is my, uh, I think, the best Jason Statham film for uh, quite a while. I really, really liked, mm. and I think I'm going to be on my own in this one, I really liked Crank 2. But uh, since mm. then, it's been a steady stream of, of mediocrity, really, hasn't it? But this this is very, very good. We gave it four stars. Kim gave it four stars, no less. Yes. And I, and I agree with that one uh, wholeheartedly. And also, the Stath acts in this one, doesn't he? He actually does an American accent. It's it's good. I mean, there's there's a moment where he has to cry. They, they, uh, it's a very, very early, so it's not a spoiler, but they, the bad men, they kill his wife in a flashback and he has he, he has, he has sheds a tear over it. And it's it's rather nice. And I don't think the tear was CG either. So <laughs> The Oscar race starts here. Yeah, I'm not saying Oscars, but uh, I know that his, his next film, Hummingbird, which is uh, directed by Stephen Knight, who's the guy who wrote Dirty Pretty Things and Eastern Promises, is more of a drama as mm. well. And has taken so I think he's beginning to step away from this comfort zone of of just kicking ass and mindless busting heads violence. and mindless violence yeah. and and he's beginning to do something that, that that can push him as an actor because I genuinely think and again I may be in the minority here but I genuinely think there's an enormous untapped potential in the state uh, as an actor if you look at things like Snatch uh, he's very very good in that playing a character who's not the state mm. that we've come to know of and, the, the and he's kind of good at un- I mean you know Crank he does basically undermine himself and mm. does it very kind of wittily in a way yeah. I think that's a uh, maybe not so much Crank 2 but I think Crank is a is a hugely awesome Crank 2 is completely and utterly demented and I think yes. those guys mean it and it, it's very very funny is there something in, in this film for non-Statham fans I think it's a really really good hard-boiled thriller it reminds yes. me a lot um, not very much in terms of the structure but uh, it, it has that feeling of something like Mel Gibson's Payback or you know it came equated to you know the great Bronson and McQueen vehicles from the 1970s mm. you know he's got this great hard-boiled action there's some fantastic noir dialogue at one point he goes I've been in the restaurants all evening all I've been served is lead uh, there's <laughs> fights in the plot never quite go the way you think they're going to do uh, Yakin is very very good at undercutting everything under- undercutting every development mm. uh, and it's very very good and I recommend that one for me it's a, uh, the best thing since punched bread so uh the final film that's going under our beady-eyed spotlight this week is another in the long line of Nicholas Sparks adaptations. This one stars Zac Efron. It's called The Lucky One. Uh, but will the lucky ones be the audience? Uh, there's a segue. <laughs> wow. Um, that was awful. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> this is, if you've seen other Nicholas Sparks uh, films like The Notebook and Dear John and so on, you will know exactly what you're in for. <laughs> I thought you were say one. you'll have seen this one. <laughs> well, you, you essentially have. I mean, especially Dear John. It's it's really very similar in, uh, in tone. The basic plot is that Zac Efron is a Marine now please suspend your disbelief it's, he's, he's a very fit young man, he could be a marine um, he's uh, a marine and he finds this picture out in Iraq of uh, a, a smiling woman, he doesn't know who she is he just finds it and uh, he keeps it with him through his three tours in Iraq and it keeps him safe, it becomes his lucky charm, so when he gets back to the States he tracks down this woman to try to find her and then of course doesn't tell her immediately, hey I've got your picture and uh, and just goes to you know, ends up getting a job with her instead mm-hmm. and uh, yeah and and romantic complications ensue. It's, it's funny how how thin a line it is between incredibly romantic fairy tale things and things that are just a bit creepy sounding. <laughs> like, <laughs> he walks to her house. What's he going to do when he gets there? He walks across What's America the, without ever passing a major road or unscenic piece of scenery. So sort of love story meets Forrest Gump. 
yes it is a little bit and it's it's i mean like all nicholas sparks movies it's set in a small southern town on the coast um it has a faintly tragic southern belle uh, as the love interest a manly warrior poet as the male uh, you know lover i mean honestly it's you could he just deals in this film is going okay deals in art, sort of movie archetypes doesn't he nicholas sparks i he wonder how it like, does and and you know there's there's something to be said for you know trying to you know actually do serious romances in this cynical age and and he's obviously done very well at it so he's clearly doing something right but at the same time this one feels just so similar to the ones he's done before but better this is for my money not as good as dear john which is fine which wasn't as good goes, as notebook which, which wasn't, wasn't as good as the notebook yeah, yeah. So i mean so, so, so it's 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 not it's not brilliant i think uh, i don't think that's anything particularly to do with the cast it's just that the formula has become so staid and formulaic mm. and they can't get past that and how's uh, saffron as a uh, an iraq war veteran he, he's a little bit i think it's not that his acting's bad i think it's just he's too young to convince at it he ha- um he, he's, he's 12, trying he? to uh, something like 24 that? i think 24, but, okay. um he, he he just doesn't quite have and he's probably the right age actually for someone who's just done three tours in the marines but mm-hmm. he doesn't feel like he's got that kind of heft behind him yet um and also the um the woman he's romancing is meant to be a slightly older woman but it, it does kind of emphasize that fact that he feels very young for the part that he's playing so just you know i mean basically yeah it's 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 genuinely sticks Exactly to the Nicholas Sparks mm. formula. I found it like like this last one, last song. It is formulated, but it's it's sort of comfort food, I guess, for people that like that kind of thing. And with fairy tales being hmm. so yeah. probably this is kind of a modern fairy tale. I'm just trying to find you know. Some, yeah, some... Uh, there is. I mean, there's there's an element of that, but I think I don't think it's fairy tale ish because there's enough um, sort of uh, tragedy in the in the background. And of course, uh, I don't think I genuinely don't think this is even a spoiler. In every Nicholas Sparks movie, somebody dies somebody okay. dies late on okay. so yeah. you know there's a bit of tragedy there it doesn't have that fairy tale sort of perfect feeling okay so we gave it two stars you'd agree with that uh, I gave it two stars so yes oh well there you go you, you agree with yourself <laughs> no <laughs> really okay. radically I do your mind is your mind as they say uh, okay we've got no more time to discuss anything else but we should point out that Monsieur Lazar and Takashi Miike's Harakiri uh, Death of a Samurai both getting limited releases are worth your time this weekend if you're not going to see the adventures again while Shaun of the Dead completists might be intrigued by the Cuban homage Juan of the Dead which is also getting a limited release and there's a wide release for Silent House a remake of the Uruguayan one take horror this one is also in just one take and it stars Elizabeth Olsen and is a solid three star horror flick so there you go and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast join us next week for more film related fun when Edgar Wright will drop into the booth to talk about his internet comic book The Random Adventures of Brandon Generator and we're going to be discussing Tim Burton's Dark Shadows Ollie that should please you bit of Michelle Pfeiffer Carpentry going on there Yes, not in the film. No, really? No, she oh, doesn't. Okay. As far as I know, she doesn't build anything in the film. <laughs> oh, that's I smart. heard she built the set, though, right? It's she a built massive the set. If she yeah. did, she's very good. <laughs> she, yeah, she is very good. Uh, we're also going to be discussing the return to the big screen of Mel Gibson and how I spent my summer vacation, which should please Joe Esther House no end. And let's face it, we'll still be banging on about the Avengers, won't we? Uh, so that's it from Helen. Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. Uh, Ollie, first goodbye from you. Goodbye. Wow, that was a very emphatic goodbye. You coming back? Yeah, we'll we see. We won't talk Depends about that drunk I am. Okay, cool. Uh, and of course, goodbye from me. Bye bye. <laughs>